Chapter Sixteen of Starman's Quest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Starman's Quest by Robert Silverberg. Chapter Sixteen. At the time, he had been much too excited and flustered to answer anything, but as the next twelve months went by, he learned that being a millionaire was quite pleasant indeed. There were headaches, of course. There was the initial headache of signing his name several hundred times in the course of the transfer of Hawk's wealth to him. There were also the frequent visits from the tax collectors and the payments to them of a sum that staggered Alan to think about in the name of rotation tax. But even after taxes, legal fees, and other expenses, Alan found he owned better than nine hundred thousand credits. And the estate grew by investment every day. The court appointed a legal guardian for him, the lawyer Jesperson, who was to administer Alan's money until Alan reached the biological age of twenty-one. The decision was an involved one, since Alan had undeniably been born three hundred years earlier in thirty-five seventy-six. But the robo-judge that had presided over that particular hearing cited a precedent seven hundred years old, which stated that for legal purposes a starman's biological and not his chronological age was to be accepted. The guardianship posed no problems for Alan, though. When he met with Jesperson to discuss future plans, the lawyer told him, "You can handle yourself, Alan. I'll give you free rein with the estate." With the proviso that I have veto power over any of your expenditures until your twenty-first birthday, that sounded fair enough. Alan had reason to trust the lawyer. Hadn't Hawkes recommended him? I agree to that," said Alan. "Suppose we start right now. I'd like to take a year and travel around the world. As my legal guardian, you'll be stuck with the job of managing my estate and handling my investments for me. Jesperson chuckled. "You'll be twice as wealthy when you get back. Nothing makes money so fast as money." Alan left the first week in December, having spent three weeks doing virtually nothing but sketching out his itinerary. There were plenty of places he intended to visit. There was London, where James Hudson Cavour had lived and where his hyperdrive research had been carried out. There was the Lexman Institute of Space Travel in Zurich, where an extensive library of space literature had been accumulated. It was possible that hidden away in their files was some stray notebook of Cavour's, some clue that would give Alan a lead. He wanted to visit the area in Siberia that Cavour had used as his testing ground, and from which the last bulletin had come from the scientist before his unexplained disappearance. But it was not only a business trip. Alan had lived nearly half a year in the squalor of Hasbrook, and because of his free status, he would never be able to move into a better district, despite his wealth. But he wanted to see the rest of Earth. He wanted to travel just for the sake of travel. Before he left, he visited a rare book dealer in York City. And for an exorbitant fifty credits, purchased a fifth edition copy of *An Investigation into the Possibility of Faster-than-Light Space Travel* by James H. Cavour. He had left his copy of the work aboard the Valhalla, along with the few personal possessions he had managed to accumulate during his life as a starman. The 
book dealer had frowned when Alan asked for the volume under the title he knew, The Cavour Theory. I don't think... Ah, uh, wait. He vanished for perhaps five minutes and returned with an old, fragile, almost impossibly delicate-looking book. Alan took it and scanned the opening page. There were the words he had read so many times. The present system of interstellar travel is so grossly inefficient as to be virtually inoperable on an absolute level. Yes, that's the book. I'll take it. His first stop on his round-the-globe jaunt was London, where Cavour had been born and educated more than thirteen centuries before. The Stratoliner made the trip across the Atlantic in little less than three hours. It took a half-hour more by overshoot from the airport to the heart of London. Somehow, from Cavour's few autobiographical notes, Alan had pictured London as a musty town, picturesque, reeking of medieval history. He couldn't have been more wrong. Sleek towers of plastic and concrete greeted him. Overshoots roared by at the tops of the buildings. A busy network of bridges connected them. He went in search of Cavour's old home in Bayswater, with the nebulous idea of finding some important document wedged in the woodwork. But the local security officer shook his head as Alan asked for directions. "'Sorry, lad, I've never heard of that street. "'Why don't you try the information robot up there?' "'The information robot was a blocky, green-skinned synthetic "'planted in a kiosk in the middle of a broad, well-paved street. "'Alan approached and gave the robot Cavour's thirteenth-century-old address. "'There is no record of any such address in the current files,' "'the steely voice informed him. "'No, it's an old address.' It dates back to at least 2570. A man named Cavour lived there. The robot digested the new data. Relays hummed softly within it as it scanned its memory banks. Finally it grunted, Data on the address you seek has been reached. Fine, where's the house? The entire district was demolished during the general rebuilding of London in 2982 to 2997. Nothing remains. Oh, said Alan. The London trail trickled out right then and there. He pursued it a little further, managing to find Cavour's name inscribed on an honor roll of the impressive London Technological Institute for the year 2529, and discovered a copy of Cavour's book in the Institute Library. There was nothing else to be found. After a month in London, Alan moved on eastward across Europe. Most of it was little like the descriptions he had read in the Valhalla's library. The trouble was that the starship's visits to Earth were always at least a decade behind, usually more. Most of the library books had come aboard when the ship had first been commissioned, far back in the year 2731. The face of Europe had almost totally altered since then. Now shiny new buildings replaced the ancient houses which had endured for as much as a thousand years. A gleaming bridge linked Dover and Calais. Elsewhere, the rivers of Europe were bridged frequently, providing easy access between the many states of the Federation of Europe. Here, there, monuments of the past remained. The Eiffel Tower, 
absurdly dwarfed by the vast buildings around it, still reared its spidery self in Paris, and Notre Dame still remained as well. But the rest of Paris, the ancient city Alan had read so much of, that had long since been swept under by the advancing centuries. Buildings did not endure forever. In Zurich he visited Lexman Institute for Space Travel, a magnificent group of buildings erected on the royalties from the Lexman space drive. A radiant statue sixty feet high was the monument to Alexander Lexman, who in 2337 had first put the stars within the reach of man. Alan succeeded in getting an interview with the current head of the Institute, but it was anything but a satisfactory meeting. It was held in an office ringed with mementos of the epoch-making flight of 2338. "'I'm interested in the work of James H. Cavour,' Alan said almost immediately, and from the bleak expression that appeared on the scientist's face, he knew he had made a grave mistake. "'Cavour is as far from Lexman as possible, my friend. Cavour was a dreamer. Lexman, a doer.' Lexman succeeded, but how do you know Cavour didn't succeed as well? Because, my young friend, faster than light travel is flatly impossible. A dream, a delusion. You mean that there's no faster than light research being carried on here? The terms of our charter set down by Alexander Lexman himself specify that we are to work toward improvements in the technique of space travel. It is nothing about fantasies and daydreams. No, ah, uh, hyperdrive research is taking place at this institute, and none will take place so long as we remain true to the spirit of Alexander Lexman. Alan felt like crying out that Lexman was a bold and daring pioneer, never afraid to take a chance, never worried about expense or public reaction. It was obvious, though, that the people of the Institute had long since fossilized in their patterns. It was a waste of breath to argue with them. Discouraged, he moved on, pausing in Vienna to hear the opera. Max had always intended to spend a vacation with him in Vienna, listening to Mozart, and Alan felt he owed it to Hawks to pay his respects. The operas he saw were ancient, medieval in fact, better than two thousand years old, he enjoyed the tinkly melodies, but found some of the plots hard to understand. He saw a circus in Ankara, a football game in Budapest, a Nullgrav wrestling match in Moscow. He journeyed to the far reaches of Siberia, where Cavour had spent his final years, and found that what had been a bleak wasteland suitable for spaceship experiments in 2570 was now a thriving modern city of five million people. The site of Cavour's camp had long since been swallowed up. Alan's faith in the enduring nature of human endeavor was restored somewhat by his visit to Egypt, for there he saw the pyramids, nearly seven thousand years old. They looked as permanent as the stars. The first anniversary of his leaving the Valhalla found him in South Africa. From there he traveled eastward through China and Japan, across the highly industrialized islands of the far Pacific, and from the Philippines he returned to the American mainland by Jet Express. 
He spent the next four months traveling widely through the United States, gaping at the Grand Canyon and the other scenic preserves of the West. East of the Mississippi, life was different. There was barely a stretch of open territory between York City and Chicago. It was late in November when he returned to York City. Jesperson greeted him at the airfield, and they rode home together. Ellen had been gone a year. He was past eighteen now, a little heavier, a little stronger. Very little of the wide-eyed boy who had stepped off the Valhalla the year before remained intact. He had changed inwardly. But one part of him had not changed, except in the direction of greater determination. That was the part that hoped to unlock the secret of faster-than-light travel. He was discouraged. His journey had revealed the harsh fact that nowhere on earth was research into hyperdrive travel being carried on. Either they had tried and abandoned it as hopeless, or, like the Zurich people, they had condemned the concept from the start. "'Did you find what you were looking for?' Jesperson asked. Alan slowly shook his head. "'Not a hint. And I really covered ground.' He stared at the lawyer a moment. "'How much am I worth now?' Well, offhand, Jesperson thought for a moment. Say, a million three hundred. I've made some good investments this past year. Alan nodded. Good. Keep the money piling up. I may decide to open a research lab of my own, and we'll need every credit we've got. But the next day an item arrived in the morning mail, which very much altered the character of Alan's plans for the future. It was a small but thick package, neatly wrapped, which bore as return address the name Dwight Bentley, with a London number. Alan frowned for a moment, trying to place the name. Then it came back to him. Bentley was the vice-provost of the London Institute of Technology, Cavour's old school. Alan had had a long talk with Bentley one afternoon in January, about Cavour, about space travel, and about Alan's hopes for developing a hyperspace drive. The parcel was the right size and thickness to contain a book. Alan slit the fastenings and folded back the outer wrapper. A note from Bentley lay on top. London, 3rd November, 3877. My dear Mr. Donnell, perhaps you may remember the very enjoyable chat you and I had one day at this institute last winter on the occasion of your visit to London. You were, I recall, deeply interested in the life and work of James H. Cavour, and anxious to carry on the developments he had achieved in the field of space travel. Several days ago, in the course of an extensive resurveying of the Institute's archives, the enclosed volume was discovered very thoroughly hidden in the dusty recesses of our library. Evidently Mr. Cavour had forwarded the book to us from his laboratory in Asia, and it had somehow become misfiled. I am taking great liberty of forwarding the book on to you, in the hopes that it will aid you in your work and perhaps ultimately bring you success. Would you be kind enough to return the book to me, care of this institute, when you are finished with it? Cordially, Dwight Bentley. Alan let the note slip to the floor as he reached for the enclosed book. 
It was leather-bound and even more fragile than the copy of the Cavour theory he had purchased. It looked ready to crumble at a hostile breath. With mounting excitement, he lifted the ancient cover and turned it over. The first page was blank. So were the second and third. On the fourth page, Alan saw a few lines of writing in an austere, rigid hand. He peered close and with awe and astonishment read the words written there. The Journal of James Hudson Cavour, Volume 16, January 8 to October 11, 2570. End of Chapter 16